The advice and opinions expressed by the host of Autism Live and her guests are meant solely as suggestion and should not be in any way construed as child-specific advice. The Center for Autism and Related Disorders advises working with a board-certified behavior analyst who has experience with autism before starting any intensive behavioral intervention. Any choices you make in determining your child's treatment are completely at your own discretion. Good morning and welcome to Autism Live. I'm Shannon Penrod and I do the show now in a room that has a very tiny dog in it and he chose that moment as we were coming live to take a big, I don't know if you can hear him, just like like a horse lapping water, it just cracked me up. Uh, yeah, we're live and uh, and we're I'm, I'm at home and everybody else on the show today is coming from places far away too. So uh, we're keeping it real. So thrilled to be here with you this morning on this Wednesday morning. Uh, as many of you know, on Wednesday mornings, we sometimes have an opportunity to have Dr. Doreen Grampiche with us for Ask Dr. Doreen. And when we don't have her, we are often lucky enough to have Evelyn Kung with us to do Ask Evelyn Kung. And Evelyn Kung is here with us this morning and we couldn't be more thrilled about that. Uh, before we get to her, I wanna remind all of you that there are, this show is live and it is Wednesday morning, July 22nd, 2020. And we love to hear from you and you can be writing into the live show if you're watching us live. There are lots of ways to participate. Uh, we really love it when the show is interactive. So. If you want to, you can be watching us in a number of different places. You can be watching us on YouTube, on Facebook, on our homepage, autism-live.com, or you could be watching us on Twitter or Periscope. So we are live in all of those places, and pretty much all of those places have a way in which for you to comment. Um, so we look forward to hearing from you. If you're not watching us live, that's okay. Don't feel left out. You still can write in to us lots of different ways. You can write on our website, there's a chat and you can write directly on there. That's www.autism-live.com. Or you can write directly to me, which is what one of our viewers did this morning. My email is s.penrod at autism-live. Now, for those of you who are watching us in podcast, a lot of times you're just listening, like on iTunes or on um, Spotify, iHeartRadio or Deezer. So let me spell it out for you, S as in Sam, dot Penrod, which is spelled P as in Peter, E as in egg, N as in Nancy, R as in robot, O as in Oscar, D as in dog, at autism, which I'm pretty sure you know how to spell that. And then there is a hyphen or a dash. It's the line in the middle and that it is live. L as in lollipop, I as in igloo, V as in Victor, E as in egg, s.penrod at autism-live.com. All right, so um, I hope you'll write into us with your thoughts, your questions, your concerns, anything. You know, sometimes you just need to let somebody else know what's going on. We are here as a resource. We hope to provide you information and inspiration. And um, 
that means sometimes that we need to track down resources for you. We do our level best. Uh, sometimes we are inundated and we have more requests than we can handle. We try to do our best to, to handle what you guys send us. All right, uh, having said that, one of our great resources that we have a lot of experts that are on the show, I always like to remind you the disclaimer that uh, even though we have experts on the show, they can't give individual specific advice uh, because that would be a disservice to the, the person that, uh, that the advice is about. And, um, but we can pick their brains and try to figure out the things that they know so that we have more questions to ask the experts who actually have eyes on. Let me also say too, as we start the show that our show is meant for the large autism community, which starts with individuals who are on the spectrum, of course. Uh, of course it starts with them, everything starts with them, but we include everyone who loves them. Everyone who cares about an individual who's on the autism spectrum, be that a parent, sibling, boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, teacher, therapist, uh, pediatrician, you care about some teacher, did I already say that? You care about somebody on the spectrum, I hope you'll find a home here. We know that one size doesn't fit all and that you have questions and we'd like to help you to get to that information and inspiration, let's get that word right, uh, that you're looking for. So having said all of that, we wanna welcome back to the show, Evelyn Kong. Evelyn, are you there? She I am here. Hi, good morning. So good to see you. It's good to see you, thank you for having me. Oh, no, thank you for, I, I was saying before, you regularly save our bacon and are here, and it's just such a delight, and uh, we thank you so much for being here. Uh, Evelyn, tell them a little bit about your experience in the field of autism and what you do at the Center for Autism and Related Disorders. Well, I've been here a long, long time. I predate the BCBA <laughs> certificate, so it's been almost 30 years now of um, being in this field and working with kids with autism and adults and uh, I've done training, I've been training supervisors and just giving a consultation probably for the last 25 years um, heavily. And then uh, the other part of my job in the last 10 years is developing our skills curriculum. So my technology skills have increased <laughs> quite a bit, but just um, being able to work on all the systems that support ABA. And you know whether it's in curriculum or data collection or whatever, but my real love and joy is still in um, consulting on kids and trying to problem solve and trying to help families figure out you know how to make life work essentially. So which that's you are amazing at, and we all run to you for advice about those kinds of things. Um, I I can't think of the number of times that I've been like, we got to get Evelyn on the case, we got to get Evelyn on the phone. So, um, and, and though, although you said you predate the, the, the title of BCBA, you are a BCBA. Yeah, I am. <laughs> I just want to make that clear for people who are wondering. So uh, we frequently have people who will write in questions to us throughout the week. And those are sort of our starter questions that we start. And somebody had written in a question last night and this morning that I didn't even get a chance to um, send to Evelyn. Uh, so the person says, I have a question. I hope it'll make it on today's segment. I have a three-year-old son. He gets 30 hours a week of ABA. His BCBA mentioned to me that she's going to incorporate relational frame theory in his treatment plan. I tried to read it in the internet what relational frame theory is uh, and how it's applied to children with autism. However, I still don't understand how RFT is applied and what, what its difference from traditional ABA and can you 
please help me understand. Now, Evelyn, as I understand it, you know, you are absolutely an expert in the field of autism and you're an expert in the field of ABA, but I'm guessing that you are not an expert in the field of RFT. That would be I asking. Am, yeah, I am not an RFT expert, but I predate RFT. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> so, so, you know, a little bit. So I know a little bit because when people started researching it, they came to CARD and they said, what do you guys do? Because in reality, um, relational frame theory is what they call a modern ABA technique. Okay. So what happens is ABA is an umbrella. And under the umbrella of ABA, there are all these different types of techniques that can be used to teach language, skills, whatever it may be. So, you know, under the umbrella of um, ABA, you might hear about discrete trial training or natural environment training or pivotal response training or, you know, an RFT lands under one of those. Um, it's not a technique for learning, but it's probably like an area of how kids learn. And the area it relates to that I do know a lot about is perspective taking, okay? So perspective taking is a primary area of um, a deficit in autism. People with autism have a really hard time taking someone else's perspective. And you know, you might hear the term theory of mind. And it's like just the idea of mind or perspective taking. In the ABA world, they had a really hard time dealing with those terms because it wasn't concrete, everything is operationally defined in that in the ABA world. And it was very difficult to define what mind was or perspective without. Um, using the term in a way of what, we, what they in ABA is called circular reasoning. One exists without using another and you you kind of go in this circle and it's none of it's very concrete and, and operationally defined enough. So relational frame, frame theory came out of trying to define um, how um, some kind of verbal thought would relate to um, learning. And so, um, it, so um, RFT has really taken off in the last ten years because they had to figure out a way to do how to describe, you know, this idea of mind or perspective and how you learn. And so, there is no way I'm um, an expert in it, and I won't even try to say what it actually is. But if you what it relates to in in um, let's say in our terms or in our skills curriculum turn, which is all based on research, also is um, the idea of perspective taking, be able to take somebody else's uh, um, perspective. And in real life and development, um, the beginning of perspective taking is starts around nine months old, and it's the it's the baby sitting in the high chair, and they drop their sippy cup, and mom reaches it over and picks it up and puts it back on. And then there's this, hmm, let me see if I throw it again. Will they pick it up again? And lo and behold, it's like this amazing cause and effect idea that starts to form. That if I do this, so it makes somebody else respond. And from there, you start to see little the idea of senses. Like mm, I can smell a perfume and I think, well, mommy, this smells good. But then somebody else smells it and they're like, ew, yucky. And that's at the beginning of the formation of the idea of, I like this smell, but you don't. Mm -hmm. And um, in the real world, real perspective taking, I always, the example I always use comes around four to five years old. And I always use the example of playing hide and seek because in kindergarten, typically 
half the, the majority of the kids actually can't play hide and seek. They're giggling in the corner, their arms are sticking out of places they're hiding because they don't realize that somebody else can see or hear them when they're hiding. And, but by the end of kindergarten, the majority of the kids can play hide and seek and they're actually much better at it. They still might have issues like they're, how loud they're laughing and giggling in the corner. <laughs> you know and there are some kids that still have arms and legs sticking out of you know everywhere so everybody can find them immediately but you can really see that in that kindergarten year how their idea of I have to think like I don't want this person to find me so I have to be quiet or I don't want this person to find me so wherever I'm hiding they can't see any part of my body so like that's the begin that is really where the year where you start to see the idea of perspective taking and then it continues to develop in research through the age of about 10 or 12 years old like and it gets it goes through like being able to understand sarcasm i said something and it's not true but it's so not true that it's absurd so that it becomes funny you know um but uh, you know the idea of um knowing when things happen when when plans change knowing that if somebody was there or heard, you know, how much do they understand? And within the idea of uh, theory of mind, there is like different levels. So there is like the first level, which is strict out. Like if you hear me, you use your senses. If you see, if you saw it, if you know it, if you heard it, that's how you know about it. But if, if Shannon and I were, and um, Trevor were talking and Trevor walked away and Shannon and I changed our plans, if the person understands that second order of theory of mind, they would know that Trayvon wouldn't think, know about our change in plans. He would still think um, our plans are whatever he heard or was a part of at that time. So, you know, there's different levels and, and you start to see it in people. And there is some, um, there is some research like by the end, by the age of 12 or 13, if you've never had any teaching on theory of mind, through experience of life, you realize, wow, when mom's not in the room, she I don't get in trouble for doing something that I wasn't supposed to do. So it does come for a lot of people with autism on that basic level. But really being able to understand theory of mind um, teaches you about, like, you can't lie well if you don't have theory of mind. But you also can't discriminate when somebody's teasing you for, for fun versus teasing you to be mean if you don't have a good perspective taking you don't understand jokes or the difference between lying and a magic trick that's for fun. You know, a lot of our kids have these arguments in school or they come home, they don't know whether something happened on accident or on purpose. So if a kid bumps into them in the hallway, if they think, if they don't have good perspective taking, they're thinking that person's trying to hurt them. So that intention, the idea of understanding intentions, that's the whole development of um, perspective taking that's out there. So if your um, person is starting to teach RFT at the age of three, it's probably a good time, but just remind her that whatever skill you're teaching, you don't wanna, the language level, the communication level needs to be at the same level because you start to have problems. One thing I learned early on, and this is just pure by trial and error, is I remember teaching senses to a child who didn't have the maybe the social understanding of what senses were and um, besides identifying. But he's, when he started to figure out on his own, and our kids are so smart, they figured out like, I don't see it, so you, you can't, I don't get in trouble for it. So we had kids start throwing away parents' keys because they didn't want to go out. 
and you couldn't reason why those keys were needed (laughs) and the language involved. So I would just encourage that you don't want to teach past their age of development. If you only want to teach what a three or four year old is learning at that time, you don't want to go and try to teach something that's a lot higher level developmentally not appropriate because then it becomes, you know, there's just, there's a lot of understanding that doesn't happen. And if language isn't keeping up also, you start to get discrepancies in terms of, there's a lot of prompting that happens when um, a lot of our people will come in and they'll start teaching perspectives or BCBAs will come in trying, and I'll look at the kid and if their language level doesn't match, it ends up being the therapist prompting their big dependency ends up coming because then the therapist ends up being the one who constantly the kid can only do it if the therapist asks the right question so there's learning techniques that have to be there but otherwise you know there is a whole you know rf team framework that is appropriate to a three-year-old out there it's just stay within that three-year-old range and it's a good thing Okay, very cool. Uh, this is an interesting question. Uh, by the way, we're saying hi to Um, and we're saying hi to Debbie, and we're saying hi to Kirsten, and we're saying hi to Nasser. Uh, so feel free to write in, you guys, if you want us to say hi to you. So uh, hi, Evelyn. I'm a card parent. Uh, since uh, here in California, obviously, we're not going back to school. Has card looked into the homeschooling program? And I'm going to say, you know, I don't think it's a definite thing, depending on where you are in California. Here in Los Angeles, we're for 100% sure that we're not going back to school in the fall, but Orange County slugging it out. They're saying that they're going to go back into the classroom. I, I didn't watch what happened yesterday, but I, I don't think it's a one size fits all. But I love the question. A lot of people have been asking, is CARD going to offer a homeschooling program? Okay, so CARD actually in Virginia is an academy. So we have all the ability to offer educational services. But the big question typically and sadly is, how does this relate to your funding source? Because if you have health insurance, they will treat medical necessity. They are not here for the academic. So we cannot use medical necessity funding for an educational program, okay. So you'd have to slug it out with your school. You'd have to get your school to pay for your card homeschool program, which people can do. I mean, people are trying all different kinds of things. We've had Bonnie on and Bonnie has said, schedule an IEP meeting today, get it on on the books today and go in and ask them for the distance learning plan. And if it doesn't look ship shape, say, would you be willing to fund a different because people are starting to sue school districts for special needs kids. So they might be willing, who knows? Bonnie is saying ask. Yeah, and a lot of districts aren't, um, they just don't even have a plan for any of the special education students. And that's wrong overall. And there was actually an article that just came out. I didn't get to read it, but it's basically um, insisting that Congress pass IDEA, that schools have to support IDEA during this time where there's a lot of remote learning. Well, and, the, and Betsy DeVos did say that there was no excuses, that that they still needed to provide FAPE, that, that she wasn't going to give a pass on those things. Uh, she said a lot of other things uh, too, but that she did say. So, uh, you know, how people have started filing lawsuits. Now, you know, 
that's their right and they have the right to do that. My my thing is, is that by the time you get around to solving that lawsuit, your kid's going to be five grades from now. And I'd rather have my kid get the education today than fight with the school district for five years. So I'm with Bonnie, ask, ask if they'll do it. But first you got to ask for the IEP meeting. You got to ask for the distance learning plan. And if it comes back thin or they don't have one, you got to say, this isn't appropriate. What are you willing to do to work with me on it? Yeah, and I mean, people like like LAUSD uh, through COVID the last few months, they actually approved all funding remotely. So all our paraprofessionals who were card, who had card as paraprofessionals, um, we were actually helping the kids with remote learning at home, you know, through remotely. So if they were on Zoom, there would be the picture of the teacher and our kid and um, our key, our tech. So that they were helping the child stay on task, making sure they understood what the teacher the instructions were for the teacher. And there is a component there where a fam, a parent or a caregiver or someone has to be there to make sure the child stays on task. And um, that is the hardest factor. But the thing is the families that really wanted it and were willing completely found ways to make it work. But there were um, issues like with internet and all sorts of other issues that came into play that made it difficult for families to access this. And then there were some families who just didn't have the means yeah. to, to support the child at home. And we were given very clear orders by LAUSD that all the um, support we had given had to be remote. They did not want anybody going into the home Yeah, for the safety of the staff, so. Yeah. Uh, okay, uh, so we're all we're all in this, you know, in this new place, and we're all in this new place together. Our circumstances are different, but each day we're finding out more information. And some intrepid parents are are going in and saying, you know, here's what I want, and it's a very interesting. It's like the wild west of education. Definitely. So there we go. <laughs> Uh, moving on. Uh, my almost five-year-old stage two autism is refusing to go to bed. We are staying up till 1 a.m. for the last two weeks. We do not do sleep aids. How can I break the cycle? Sending you a hug because this was my story, right? My, we were driving my son around in the car until three o'clock in the morning because we could not get him to sleep. What, what you got in your bag of tricks, Evelyn? <laughs> Oh, so many things to think about on this one because I felt like almost every kid, I think my 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 when my life of autism started, I think every child, the first probably 20 kids I saw all had all had sleep issues. You know, they were stay, they'd stay up till two in the morning and then sleep like 12 hours and then be up again and then it would get worse and worse. And then soon the whole cycle had reversed where they're up all night, sleep all day, and um, just issues. Okay, so there, if you have a BCBA involved, they need to do a functional assessment to figure out why the kid is, why your child is staying up. But I'm gonna give you some just general um, common issues. A lot of our kids that are staying home are not right now getting the ener their energy out. <laughs> their yayas. I say they gotta get their yayas out. Yeah, they just need to go and run and jump and whatever activity it is to tire them out. You know, I know adults like this who can't sleep because they're sitting all day working or whatever, but they just don't, they're, they're just not getting that energy out. And so I'd say if your child's not getting that, figure out a way to do that. You know, whether it's going for a walk every day or letting them run, making them run. Because a lot of our kids do not like to run. So it requires somebody 
going outside and making them move and climb and do things, you know, the activity that nor was normally required when they were spending a school day out. So if you're not getting your yayas out, definitely your kid has to do that. The other thing is food-wise, you know, start experimenting with when, when, when are you feeding him last and what kind of food you're feeding him at, you know, for that dinner meal. And some of our kids get a lot of renewed energy the minute they eat. So if that's the case, then you want dinner to happen earlier and a snack not to come in. And because there are plenty of foods that actually just keep our children up, you know, and you never know what it is. And if that is the case, what I usually just tell families is start taking a food diary for a month just, or couple weeks, and writing everything and what time they ate and what time they went to sleep. And there are amazing correlations families find just by doing that. And that helps. The other thing is just like, is, is it, we can go pure behavioral now. What is the function of the behavior? A lot of times our kids don't go to sleep because maybe at night, that's the only time parents can get, they get their attention fully on their child at that time. It's the only time mom, if mom comes and lays with me in my bed and it's only time, maybe all the other siblings are asleep, everybody else is awake, mom's tired. So they're gonna stay with the child. And if the function of the behavior is attention in that form, then there, there is um, interventions that you can do is providing the behavior at other times of the day and then creating a sleep, a sleep routine too is very helpful. You create a routine where you come in and maybe you read one book or you set a, vi a visual timer so that they know that if what you're going to stay with them for 10 minutes and um, once those 10 minutes are done, they know to you know turn off the light, put the books away, and then you might leave the door open and then close it or close it with a little opening. And it might mean you slowly moving out of the room. <laughs> Sometimes it happens. Um, there's, there's just so many interventions. The other day we had a parent and um, I was, gave her lots of kudos. She actually, what she did was she put, um, she was really tired, her and her husband from working all day. So they put a blue blow up mattress in their, in their room and they started moving the blow up mattress down the hallway. <laughs> and it eventually made it back to the child's room and the child transferred to just sleeping on their own. And just create, this is, sleep is really hard, especially because sleep deprivation for the parent is so exhausted in itself. So if you can get a behavior analyst to work with you on a plan that you can follow about how to create a sleep routine and how to you know move them to their own bed or how to get them to their bed and stay in their bed and giving them a reinforcer in the morning, if they do, reserving a certain type of reinforcer that if they went to bed by a certain time and stayed in bed, then they could have access to a reinforcer the next morning when they woke up. There's a lot of things that you can do um, what worked for you, Shannon, with Penn? With well, um, and I want to say she wrote in some more stuff. She said, we have jam-packed days. He wakes up at 100%. It doesn't matter what activities we do during the day. This is why I have a question. I've done everything. And I'm just sending you a hug because that's exactly what I said when I came in and I was like, you know, we've tried everything. It's just that sometimes we hadn't tried it all together. Like we would try one thing and then we would go to the next thing. So, um, and when we got ABA, there was a thing that the state of California said that you had to do a 16 hour class with your husband and your child could not be there. And it was, 
and, and you couldn't get access to the ABA funding unless you did this 16 hour thing. Now, I, I don't know if all of you can relate to this and I can hear people nodding their heads, but 16 hours with my husband without my child when he was two and a half and had autism had not happened. Like I didn't have a babysitter who could do that. Like I, I hadn't been alone with my husband for 16, like that's crazy talk, right? But I lucked out the universe. Uh, I had an old college friend who is so great with kids who I trusted implicitly with my child and knew a little bit about autism. She came uh, to visit. And so I was like, can I schedule this 16 hour thing? And it worked out. Um, I sort of wish now that we made parents jump through some sort of fire hoop that was like that, that was educational, not the paperwork fire hoop that you guys have to go through now. Um, but where, where you had to like learn a lot in the 16 hour things before you start. That's why I do the orientation at CARD because I, I think it really helped us. And during that 16 hour um, intervention, they asked us to identify one thing that we would like to see change. And I said the sleep thing. So this young man who was teaching the class set up, you know, with adults, we call it that sleep hygiene that, that Ev was talking about. And, but it was, he laid it all out for me on a schedule so that I couldn't mess it up. <laughs> and the first thing that had to go was that my child was not allowed to sleep during the day because my child was taking a power nap. <laughs> Like this kid would go out and we could literally hold him upside down and he wouldn't wake up. Um, so the nap had to go. And that was hell on earth for me because he was used to taking the nap and he would cork off. If he, if he had one second where he wasn't being engaged, he would go to sleep and, and you couldn't get him back awake. So for like three or four days, we, man, we couldn't go anywhere because if he got in the car, he would go to sleep. And my husband and I would tag team and we would just keep him up, keep him up, keep him up. But then um, starting at like five o'clock in the evening, we were on a timed schedule where we would have dinner, then we would have the bath, then we would have story time. And then we would watch a very specific video. And then we would go to bed and, and then each 10 minutes was marked off about what we would do and what we wouldn't do based on what he did. Um, and it took two days and he was asleep at eight o'clock at night. And, and I was like, wait, how did that happen? I've done all those things before. I just hadn't done them all together on a schedule that was so defined that I couldn't mess it up. Cause I would always be like, well, you know, you know, we're only going to read three stories tonight or we don't need to do the video or whatever. You got to do the whole, whole shebang. And the video was important. It was a, a video called Nighty Nights and I don't think it's available anymore, but what we transition and I've told this to other parents and they've used, there's a, a show that um, HBO did that was called Good Night Moon. It does the same thing. It shows kids and they're talking about going to sleep and about the bedtime ritual and it tells stories and kids are, it like gets them in sleep mode like nothing else I've ever seen. So anyway, that's what we did. And it worked um, until we got messy with the sleep schedule again. And then we had to go back to it, right? But if you do it, it's just like what they say about dieting. If you do it and you stick to it, it works, eh, right? It's not easy, but it works. And I always, what I always tell parents for anything that we're teaching is if your child's been doing this for two years, it's not changing in two days usually. 
you're lucky that it changed like that, Shannon. But for yeah. a lot of families, if the if it's now a habit for your child, just think about how long it takes for habits to build for all of us as an adults. We have to give the patience and the persistence and the consistency to make it work. And it is hard, especially if you have other children. It's very, very hard to um, be consistent. This, um, it's like I, for me, for the first time in my life, I, as since I've been a parent, I'm actually every, every night, I'm actually being able to walk or just get some form of exercise. And I have to do it because my back hurts if I don't. <laughs> and I, and I, you know, I have my little app that tells me how many days. There's no other time when I can go 38 days, you know, and do this every night because there's always some event to go to some, you know, just something going on in life that happens and sleep does get disrupted that way. So this is actually a perfect time to do it because you can't go out. There's, yeah. there really isn't any outside, <laughs> you know, yeah. where you have to be somewhere and, or it might be, but it's not going to be as much as it is when, you know, and it has been in the past in terms of events going on in your household where you can't get um, sit down with your child and go through the routine and get them in bed at a specific time. This is actually a very good time to do it. There you go. I love this question. Hi, ladies. My son is six years old and he is day and night potty trained since he was four. I've been trying to get him to wipe himself after a BM and he just wants to poop and go wash his hands. I've tried video modeling, visual schedules with his pictures, doing the steps and nothing. <laughs> um, for a lot of our kids, in actually for typical kids, it's, it's neurotypical kids have the same issue. Um, they don't know why they have to wipe. <laughs> and until they realize either it's stinky or messy or it doesn't feel good, you know, like it, though the really concrete aspects is what convinces a typical child to wipe. <laughs> it has to bother them in some way. And for our kids, a lot of the, they're not bothered by many of these things. So Initially, I would say, try to figure out like what actually bothers them and start there. But if your child is not bothered by any of this, and the, the, the fact that he was toilet trained early actually is a really good thing because that means being wet probably did bother him. And so now um, with bowel movements, it's just not bothering him enough. So um, you have to put some other, you can add a reinforcer in and say like, okay, if you wipe, this is what you get. And this is the only time you get it is if you use the toilet wipe and wash your hands, then you have access to it for a certain amount of time. And then it goes away again until that happens. But that means you're removing access to that highly desired item, no matter what. And the thing is, it can be like a certain program or video on an iPad, or it can be a game that only comes out or a texture, whatever it may be, if you reserve a reinforcer just for those three items and you can keep a little chart that shows them doing it and you can mark it, um, that is the most concrete way for a six-year-old to understand. The other way is, and this is kind of gross, parents have told me it's gross, but it works. <laughs> and I think it's that's what you're gonna say. Challenge child is if it's after a bowel movement, they, you create it like a cause and effect game. You wipe and you look to see if anything's there. <laughs> and you keep wiping till you can't see anything anymore. 
And when you don't see anything, that's what qualifies as stopping. And that alone put some kind of reasoning for kids of understanding the concrete cause and effect is I wipe, I look, and it just, you just make it a routine. You basically keep wiping until you can't see. And um, it's worked for a lot of kids I've worked with. <laughs> and, but it makes it concrete enough for the reason of why. Yeah. You know, otherwise it's hard to understand why. It's just like, you know, when you teach washing hands to a lot of our kids, they don't know why they have to wash their hands because they can't see the germs. Yeah, uh, I, but I wonder, and I'm just gonna throw this iron on the fire. I wonder if he knows how to proficiently wipe. Because I think that sometimes uh, kids don't know how to do it. And so it just seems like a ridiculous thing because it's not doing anything and they don't really know how to do it. But I'll tell you what else I wonder. I, I want to know if anybody out there has gotten that new thing that turns your toilet into a bidet that has the squirt stream. Because I wonder what that would be like for our kids, whether it would be traumatizing or whether they would be like, hey, this is fabulous. Um, and it's a thing that you fit onto your toilet. I, I swear I'm going to order one at some point, but you fit it onto your toilet and hook it up to the water line and it, it turns your toilet into a bidet and it shoots water at your bum. Um, I wonder what our, what our kids would think of that. I'm not sure that it would be a good thing. Do you know anybody who's used it, Ev? No, I don't know anybody who used it. But on a side note, one of the things I actually have done with kids is we'll do the flushable wipes. We start with that because it just feels better. Yeah. And then and transition them. Yeah, and, and it transitions them to the toilet paper. And a lot of them will wipe happily with the flushable wipe, but not with the not with toilet paper because it just doesn't feel good. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you on that. Uh, okay, I want to jump ahead because somebody wrote something in that is breaking my heart. My, um, from YouTube, my daughter-in-law sent me a heartbreaking text asking if I could search for any studies showing whether kids diagnosed with ASD at some time later in life show caring of other people. He is four. Let me just tell you, uh, you know, Ev's going to talk about studies and things. Yes, 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 yes. They care about other people. This idea that they don't care about other people is a lie. Um, there are times when, when our kids will demonstrate and it looks like, oh, they have no empathy, but usually that's other things that are going on or they're not understanding context, but I'll let you hear from the expert. I just want you to know my kid cares deeply about other kids. Um, and at four, you couldn't have seen evidence of that. Yeah. And I would say for, I think family, parents worry about this. And I always say, you know what? Worry about teaching everything a four-year-old should know first. Yeah. Because if you're missing any clues, like especially, um, let's say, emotional or nonverbal cues of people, it's hard to show the empathy that um, we would want from our kids to show. But maybe oh, more, more over instances of behavior will, um, you know, have the kid understand more about what caring is. And you know what, a lot of earlier we talked about perspective taking. If your child's missing perspective taking, that's a whole huge, you have to understand that a person is hurting or not in a good place before you can demonstrate empathy. And a whole group of our kids do this automatically already. They do it, but there are a group of kids that come in and they don't have the perspective taking so they don't demonstrate it. And just the fact, and so really working on all these other skills of interaction 
really help them understand how other people feel and you know what's going on. And some of our kids are very concrete. Maybe they only show care when um, there's crying because there's like physical evidence, you know, for of somebody not being happy, or maybe they only understand the experiences they have. So if the, if if some if they saw somebody you know lose their favorite item and they have lost their favorite item, then they understand. But there is a way to teach it. They are really good. I mean, that intensive intervention early on with language and and you know teaching those cognitive skills all of that really matters you know it's not that they don't care it's just that they're not even picking up the cues that would indicate them and point them to the way of caring and then i had a mom who was a rock star mom she went through card her kid finished at eight and um typical school typical everything graduated from college now the whole deal but i remember her calling me when she was 12 like tears of joy. And I was like, what's going on? And she was just, he, when he left at eight, he didn't care as much ma as mom wanted him to care. She really wanted him to care about a lot about people. And she was amazing. What she ended up doing was every month they went and um, they lived here in LA. She went and he had to serve food down in Skid Row. And she did every month they went, they went down to Venice Beach, they went down and they passed out food, she, you know, and he, he could do all of it, but she just didn't feel like he cared. But at some point she realized he cared a lot because he actually came home from something and said, you know what, I wanna do a garage sale. I'm gonna sell my video games and I'm gonna give all the money to, you know, some organization for some cause that he really cared about. You know, it wasn't the cause that she originally chose, but then that's when she realized, oh, he does care, <laughs> you know, but she took him down until she saw some kind of evidence. She just took him monthly for a couple of years. And, you know, even though he could give all the right vocal responses, she just never felt like he physically showed it enough. Mm -hmm. And that's what was her concern. And she did that for a couple of years and at a certain point when that happened, she was like, oh, he does care. It's just yeah. that it came more from like his way of demonstrating it. And then also it was some cause or population that he really felt, you know, that he felt the need to support. And then, then she saw all the caring come out in that need. And we said, we see that all the time for everybody. You know, we see that like some people are, you know, our advocates for ACT Today are amazing. You know, they will come and support, you know, autism and they come from all different reasons why, you know, about why they're supporting autism. And then there's people who care about homelessness or, you know, just there's all these causes out there. They do. You can teach it, but I would, this is where it goes back to he's four. He should be having early intensive intervention because you need all those other skills to be building alongside of it to, for it to really show in the way that, yes. um, that mom's going to want. I would, yeah, the thing that I would want to know is, you know, I would be asking your daughter-in-law, are you doing intensive ABA? Like, is she doing between 30 and 40 hours of ABA? with this little customer. And, um, but I, I, what I hear is the fear and I can relate to the fear because when my child was four, I wondered the same thing. But if she just needs to know that there's hope and that there's promise, you can write to me s.penrod at autism-live, send me your phone number and I will have my son call her and she can talk to my son 
my son who was nonverbal, self-injurious and showed no indication that he even knew that other people existed when he was three. I'll be happy to put him on the phone with her and she can see that yes, in fact, and he'll like his friends at high school call him the doctor because he, he's the one that they all run to when they're having a problem. Um, and he talks, it talks it through with them. They absolutely care, 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 care. Um, uh oh. So our mom that <laughs> about the toilet and I said, what about the bidet thing? She said they would drink out of the toilet. We don't want that. Don't get this <laughs> toilet squirter if you think your child will, will drink out of the toilet. Let's ixnay on that. Um, uh, okay. And and she, the, the parent who said her son does not like to wipe says he knows what the steps are to be done, but he doesn't want to do it. But Ev gave you a very good example of reinforcing it. I just want to say that you know, while we're doing COVID, I'm trying to sharpen up um, my boys, my husband and my son on some chores around the house because at the beginning of COVID, guess who was in charge of all of the chores? Yeah. Um, and, and I would assign it to them and it kind of like would happen in a very halfway done or it wouldn't happen, I forgot, whatever. And, um, and so I had to up the ante because they were very clear with me. I don't really care about making the bed. We're not going anywhere. No one's coming over. I'm just going to get back into that bed in a couple of hours. Why am I making the bed? It didn't matter to them. These are, you know, my son's 17. My husband is 62, right? They don't care. They don't care. And I could say, well, then I'm just not going to teach this, but I do care. I feel like the house is better and that we go to bed and have more restful sleep when we're getting into the bed when it's been made. I care. So I can't make them care, but I can pair something reinforcing with, with, with when they do it. So for my husband, I started praising him anytime he would make the bed and he didn't make it the way I wanted it to. I still praised him. And then I, <laughs> and then I would arrange the pillows the way I like them, but I would praise him for it and go, thank you. It means so much to me when you make the bed. For my son, I upped his allowance and checked off the box. Did you make your bed? You got paid, you didn't get paid because he only cares about money. He, and he said to me, I don't understand why I'm making the bed, right? Your child is younger, uh, but it's the same thing. Why does he care about wiping his butt? He's gotta have a reinforcer for it. And Evelyn had said to you, you know, you put that three thing there on the wall that he has to go to the bathroom, he has to wipe himself and he has to wash his hands and he gets the reward and it just gets all paired together. Eventually he'll you can pair that back and he'll just do it, right Ev? Yeah, it turns into a habit. Yeah. You know? Yes. My husband and son are making the bed without me doing anything now. It's a thing. <laughs> and everybody has agreed, oh, I do kind of like it better when the bed is made. There we go. Uh, okay. So, and our, and our parent that has the child that's not going to sleep says, thank you. We're starting over tonight. Yeah. And, you know, and make sure you reinforce yourselves too, ladies. When you're doing this, this is hard stuff. Reinforce yourself. Uh, okay. Uh, so the parent who did the, did the wiping, she says, I would make him wipe until the paper. Oh no, this is another parent saying I would make him wipe until the paper comes clean, but he does not feel like doing it. Um, so there we go. Uh, okay. Oh, the parent, the, the person who wrote in and said that, um, that they want to know about if they learn empathy, they said his home ABA stopped with the virus. Um, so I would call your ABA provider and ask, like, are, isn't everybody back doing ABA, Evelyn? Is it, CARD never stopped. 
So um, it is considered an essential service. So I would call your ABA provider and ask them, are they back up and running? And ask them to get back up and running. And if they don't, look into another ABA provider. You can't go this long without services, you guys. Yeah, I definitely. I mean, they're looking until 2021 if you're looking at all this. And your child can't go without services for that long. There are some ABA agencies that haven't started. Um, there are some ABA agencies that haven't done anything because um, they can't get staff to go. But this yeah. is where it goes to telehealth. You know, if you can do telehealth, telehealth actually is helping a lot of in so many ways that we didn't yes. know. Now they're saying he's getting a few of virtual hours, which I assume is telehealth. Make them up that, make them up that. And, and CARD is sending therapists to the home. Uh, ask, your, ask your provider if they're doing it or ask them to up the telehealth hours. Um, because the, what our kids need is intensity at that age. And that didn't change with COVID. And there are providers like CARD that are getting it done. It means a lot from the parents. I'm not going to candy coat that. It means commitment from you guys to be there and help and support and facilitate for your kid. But it's possible. People are doing it. Kids are making great progress on telehealth. And um, we are, CARD is being careful in the home, people going to home sessions. What we did was we, we limited it down to one or two people and kept it consistent. So that we were taking care of the safety factor of like how much exposure they had to how many people. So we did it, we, we knew that therapy had to continue. So initially we went down to only one person per child so that therapy could keep going. But as things have started to become more, um, you know, people have gotten used to all the PPE and everything else that's needed that we have increased some of the teams to like two people so that we can still have some of the generalization aspect going. Yeah, uh, somebody had written in about the empathy piece and said that there's an episode of Parenthood, which I vaguely remember when the mom got cancer and the way that um, they explained it to the son who was played by Max Burkholder. And she said, I love the way they made back Max Burkholder respond, um, you know, the, the Jason Kadams was the executive producer on uh, the Parenthood TV show. And he has uh, a teenager, uh, probably an adult now that's on the spectrum. And um, so he worked very closely with Max. I've had the pleasure of meeting both of them and, and had a very awkward moment at a Denim and Diamonds dinner where I said, I just want you to know that it meant so much to me at the time in my life. And, then the, and they were like, okay. <laughs> and they were very sweet about it but I was like I did you know to see it on tv you know and and because what I remember from parenthood was there was one scene because it's the the brother that has the kiddo on the spectrum is the one who takes care of everybody else in the family and he's dealing with his kid being on the spectrum and then his wife gets diagnosed with cancer and his other siblings are still coming to him like I need you to fix something for me and, and man, I could relate to that. And at a certain point when he was like, hey, I, I think my plate is full. I think you should take care of that yourself. Because I don't know about everybody else. That was hard for me. And to see you know, uh, him do that, I was like, yeah, I got to tell people I can't take care of everything anymore. I have my own things to take care of. Uh, Parenthood, great show. Uh, okay, I want to get to another question because we have a little bit more time. I have a family relative of 38 years old who may suffer from autism but has not been diagnosed yet. Can you please list out all of the signs and symptoms of the adult ASD and cover a talk uh, of this topic? No small thing. 
that would normally take three hours, but you've got less than nine minutes. Okay, we've had actually many um, come through in the last, since insurance funding kicked in. I've talked, I've actually helped with diagnoses for a 42 year old chemistry professor. <laughs> Love it. A 38 year old IT guy. <laughs> recently a 40 year old PhD in mathematics. Um, it's been, it's for me, it's so fun because I'm always asking why now? Mm -hmm. It's been functional. So what, what has happened? And it's been really interesting for a lot of them. It's been workplace. One of the, one of the workplaces had a dress code change and the guy walked in and said, see the way I'm dressed. I have five pairs of these shoes. 10 pairs of these pants, 30 of these shirts, and that's all I wear. And when they changed the dress code, he couldn't handle it. And so human resources realized he had an issue that they could. So they sent him to see a counselor and the counselor diagnosed him. Wow. And I asked him why, how, and he basically said his family saw him as just being probably more quirky. Um, yeah. But when he looked at the diagnoses, social communication. He didn't understand what rules, social rules. He could see that people were all behaving a certain way, but he couldn't figure it out. He offended people without knowing it all the time in all walks of his life. Um, the social communication about like not knowing why he had to give eye contact when he talked. Um, people not listening to him or people saying that he was really rude or mean when he was giving his opinions or to him stating facts, right. you know, um, calling people out when they lied because he didn't understand what a white lie was. Uh, so that's the social communication. And then usually there's a, a rigidity or repetitiveness that happens also, which is the other part of autism diagnosis, which is like the person that couldn't change his clothes, um, had his routine for what he wore, or only ate foods a certain way, or had a really hard time making decisions, um, even to what to eat. And usually it was um, came down to not understanding um, something that somebody had said about a food, about not knowing why something was bad sometimes and not bad at other times. So a grocery store um, shop, one of the women that I actually did an intake with when COVID happened, you know, they rushed people in and out of grocery stores. And for her, normally grocery store shopping took a few hours because you had to read every single thing on a package and determine whether it was good for her or not. And um, when COVID happened, they were rushing her out and she couldn't. So she just started grabbing things off the shelves to go. And then she ended up at home with nothing to, she could eat because she had grabbed like all the wrong things, not knowing what's actually important in different types of situations. That saliency factor is often a really difficult part of um, determination of what to buy or what to you know, do, or um, seeing a person who's crying, but saying they're okay, and understanding that person is still hurting even though they're saying they're okay. Yeah. You know, conflicting messages and not meaning it. All of those things that, you know, to get a diagnosis of autism, there's a social communication part and then a rigid routine repetitiveness part that has to be there. And if you have enough in each section, that's what qualifies you for um, a diagnosis of autism. And, you know, for the different adults that I've seen, there is usually somebody in their life who basically tell, 
communicates to them and says, you know what, you don't get this. Maybe you need to, you know, go get evaluated because you might have something. And for many of the adults, it's actually a relief. They were like, oh, that's why we've been different. Because even they, they're usually so intelligent that they know that they don't get things the same way other people don't get things, but they don't know what or how because it's not concrete enough for them to have, they needed somebody else to come in and say, hey, look, I see that you're having issues with this, this and this. So maybe this is something that you wanna go do just to check out and see like, is this a factor in your life or is it not? Yeah, I think Amy Schumer did a lot in the last year for the adult autism community. When she came out in her standup and started talking about the fact that her husband that she recently married and then now they have a child um, is on the autism spectrum and that the things that she loves most about him are characteristics on the autism spectrum. I think it, it allowed a lot of people to look at it and go, okay, maybe this is worth looking at. Maybe it's not as stigma filled as I thought it was. Um, I just personally um, want to thank her because I, what, you know, what's funny is that since she did that, I have had almost every girlfriend that I have call me and say, do you think that my husband is on the autism spectrum? Because there are some things that are just difference between the sexes, right? That like, you know, the fact that my husband and my son don't care, they're like, why does it matter if the beds are made does not make them on the spectrum. It makes them men. Uh, right. Uh, and some women don't care about that too. I don't mean to be sexist about it, but my point is, I, I think that more people are asking the questions now and being willing to ask the questions because Amy made it okay. Amy said, this is kind of sexy, although we, you know, there are some differences and, um, it's, I, I think it made it okay. I, I, have to be careful what I say here because there's some there's a, a person in my extended family that I have now had the because we've had so many people on the show um, that are adults who get diagnosed later on and and I'm constantly asking them you know what made you go for the diagnosis and did it help you and the thing that they all say across the board is oh my gosh it helped me so much to know because I was able to forgive myself for not knowing things that everybody thought that I should know. And it allowed me to pick and choose what I wanna learn and that I don't have to think of myself as being less than. That the one person who said to me, I felt like I got to meet myself for the first time with love, right? Um, and, and so through all of that, of, of you know, hosting the show and having all these people on, I began to realize that there's somebody in my life who regularly struggles and that seemed to, like I never thought about before, but it's like, wow, they seem to fit that criteria and had a discussion with them and said, I just, I wanna broach this. Uh, have you ever thought about that? And they said, oh yeah, I read up about a lot, but I don't see what, it would, what benefit it would have. Um, and have decided not to get diagnosed. And I think that that's a path too. But I, I do think that that person goes back and looks things up when they hit a wall and they hit a wall regularly. So um, there we are. Oh, we've got a bunch of questions that came in last minute um, that I'm not gonna get to. 
Uh, but you know what, can we make a deal that uh, our guest for tomorrow has canceled. And so tomorrow, I would like to go through all the questions that we didn't get through today. Is that okay? Uh, we won't have Ev, but I'll, uh, some of these questions are specifically for me. Uh, uh, are there any, so the, yes, if you email me, somebody says, I asked a question before I didn't get answered. Are there any resources that could be mailed to me? Email me, s.penrod at autism-live.com, and I'll be happy to answer uh, your question. All right, Ev, thank you so much for being here. You are, it's always such a pleasure to have you here. We appreciate you so much. Oh, you're welcome. It's always, it's fun for me to be here. So well, thrilled, thrilled, thrilled. And, and thank very Diana for always making you available to us. <laughs> oh, I will. Uh, she's a wonder. Um, and, and I wonder what we would do without her, but let's not find out. Uh, okay. So thank you guys. So again, tomorrow on the show, we're just going to have an answer session and let's try to get through as many of these things and delegate them out where they need to be. But if you need something in the meantime, email me s.penrod at autism live.com. That's all the time we have for today, but we'll be back tomorrow until then give your kiddos a hug for me and one for you too. Bye-bye for now.